Hi, welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. I'm your host, Malachi Greb. Today, we have an awesome guest, somebody who's been operating the company for many, many years, and his name is Harold Horgan. He's with the York Group. Hi, how's it going? Good, Malachi. We got it finally started, so sorry about the little hiccup before we got things set up. No problem. No problem. So, I mean, you, you've been doing a ton with your career. I mean, you operated a company for, has it been like 30 years now? Yeah, yeah. That's wild. It's been a long ride, yeah. I think, I think we're going to have a lot to learn from you today. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, like a lot of careers, it wasn't a straight line. So, um, right. yeah, right. been through a lot of things. So, I guess if you wouldn't mind, uh, kind of taking us back to the beginning before uh, before you became a business owner, what what exactly uh, kind of pushed you to, to go down that road? Well, uh, to go back to, back to the beginning, I'm actually from Norway originally. Okay. And uh, moved to the U.S., moved to Arizona to complete an MBA at Arizona State University. So, go Sun Devils. And, uh, and I started my career in uh, banking finance. And uh, then decided to go out on my own. I, I, I love banking, but I didn't particularly like working for a bank. And uh, so I went on my own and I started doing work with some very large companies based in Arizona around international franchising and setting up their franchise operations in different parts of the world. And one of those companies was a company called uh, MicroAge. And uh, they were one of the original franchise organizations for computer stores. And I set up a master franchise agreement for them with a Norwegian company to cover the Nordic region. And then they, at the, about the same time, they signed an agreement with a French company as a joint venture to cover the rest of Europe. And they needed someone to do the business development. And I didn't have a technology background, just a, a business background, but uh, I was kind of, kind, of, kind of tired of living in Phoenix. It's very hot there. And for, for someone from Norway, uh, it got a little bit too warm during the summers when it hit 122. So I volunteered to move to Paris for what was going to be a year to do the European business development for this JV and um, just fell in love with living in, in France. We, we did the gig for a year and a half, stretched out to a year and a half, and uh, it gave me a lot of contacts in the IT community around Europe. So I thought, well, why not do that as a business? Let's work with software companies from the US that were expanding. So this was into the middle to the end of the 90s. Uh, as we were charging headlong into to the bust. Uh, and uh, but it was a great time to be setting up operations for U.S. companies. And uh, so we did that. And we ended up with a real strong network of people. Uh, we had some very early successes uh, worldwide. And we ended up with a network of people, subcontractors and independent contractors uh, around the world to do the channel development for these companies. And so we became very good at business development and channel development for enterprise software companies. And with my background in finance, I take a very process driven approach to things. And we documented the things we were doing, documented the things that worked, uh, documented all of the things that didn't work and, uh, and had a methodology. And then 2006, Microsoft found us. Uh, Microsoft uh, tends to be process driven as well. Uh, they liked the fact that we had all of this IP and this content, and they brought us in to provide initially content for the partner program to help the software vendors that were building on the Microsoft technology stack to grow their business internationally through other Microsoft partners. And mm -hmm. then, then we got to what, the 2010, 2012, and there was a really big push to take companies into the cloud. So Microsoft wanted all of their on-premise perpetual ISVs to their, their software vendors to move their application to Azure. 
And what they found was that the biggest blocker was not the technology because these were all technology companies. They had engineers, they could, they understood what it was, but uh, what they were lacking was an understanding of the impact on their business. So what happened when they stopped selling annual, sorry, perpetual licenses uh, with on-prem software to cloud-based applications and subscriptions? Fundamental change to their business and they didn't understand the impact. So we started the providing consulting services around, well, this is how you set up your company. Uh, here's the profile of the salespeople you need. Here's the compensation model. Uh, here's the pricing models for these types of subscriptions as, uh, as opposed to perpetual licenses. How does your marketing change? How does your organizational structure need to change? And uh, we did that for a couple of years and, and um, again, build out a really strong process around that. And then one of the program sponsors from Microsoft from that program moved over to their global ISV team. Those were the very large ISVs, companies like uh, Symantec, uh, um, um, CA, uh, and then for whatever reason, a lot of large industrial companies that had software, so ABB. ABB had a big industrial software team. Schneider Electric had a big, uh, big. they had Wonderware, they had bought a lot of companies, uh, Aviva, and so they had a big industrial software team. Uh, Boeing, Lufthansa, Ericsson, and uh, so I started working with those. And initially I was really concerned because our target market is really small to mid-sized companies. Mm. And, uh, and, and uh, when they asked me to go and work with these big globals, I said, you know, and the lady was, uh, her name was Yvonne, great, great person over at Microsoft. And I said, Yvonne, we work with smaller companies and I'm gonna go in there with my, my little PowerPoint deck and my process. And these guys are gonna laugh me out of the room. These are big, sophisticated companies. And she said, no, this is new to everybody and they don't understand what the impact is on the organization. So we did this and it turned out that she was right. They didn't know what they were doing. It was a clean sheet of paper for everybody. So I ended up specializing for some reason around industrial software companies that were making that transition, moving their software, their customers and their organization from selling these big, heavy uh, on-premise applications on a perpetual license to cloud-based subscriptions. And then that morphed into IoT. So uh, about five, six years ago, the IoT team to, at Microsoft came to me and said, you know, we're now doing the same thing with manufacturers and they have the same issue. And uh, the difference being that they don't even have a software team, but what they're doing is they're attaching sensors to their devices, they're collecting data, and then we help them build some baseline applications around condition monitoring, remote monitoring, preventive maintenance, and all of a sudden they have a software product that they're going to sell for $29 or 29 euros per connected device. They throw that over the wall to their salespeople and the salespeople say, what am I supposed to do with this? And I'm selling a 300,000 euro piece of equipment or a $20,000 compressor or pump or whatever it is. And they don't understand and they don't want to understand how to sell this subscription based uh, software. Mm. And so it was exactly the same dynamics that we had with these big industrial software companies. But now we had to work with the manufacturers on, well, what's your go to market? How do you set this up? Can you use the same salespeople? Do you do, uh, is it the same uh, customer uh, that you're selling to? Is it a different target market? What are the pricing models? Uh, how do you need to restructure your marketing? And so I've worked with 40 or 50 um, major manufacturers around the world around now the business model and the go-to-market strategy for their connected devices. You've had a heck of a career that's that's taken you down some different paths for sure. As far as now, now you're in the, in the manufacturing sector yeah, and uh, seems like you're doing well in that sector as well. What 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 are some of the things that you're seeing with uh, 
being one of the pushbacks for companies wanting to use IIoT? Yeah, it's a really interesting time because I think we are truly at an inflection point in the industry and the companies that get it will survive and do well. The ones that don't uh, will effectively be making the decision to sunset their business. Um, it is all about the data. I mean, it sounds trite and, and everyone's saying uh, data is the new oil, but it is. And the companies that don't have a really strong strategy around how to monetize, first of all, collect the data from their own devices and monetize that data are ultimately going to become marginalized as simply suppliers of hardware at the lowest possible price. So it's a really tough time for manufacturers because the ones that get it, and I, and I can talk about some uh, some examples of companies that, that really get it and are, are uh, executing on a 10-year strategy and a vision, um, they have to make an investment today in a market that is relatively slow to adopt those solutions. Um, there's quite a bit of pushback from their customers. So these are manufacturers that very often are selling to other manufacturers and their customers are pushing back for a number of reasons. Um, the number one pushback is, well, we don't want to share our data. We don't want our data from our equipment going into the cloud. That's one pushback. And the second pushback is they don't want to understand or learn how to use software. That's one of the biggest issues is that you're not coming in and, and you're uh, coming back with a dashboard and then you have to connect the devices to a gateway uh, to get to the internet. Uh, you have to transfer the data. And it's for the guys that are on the shop floor, they don't want to know software. And that's one of the biggest hurdles that, that, uh, that companies have to overcome is the resistance from their, their own employees. But, yeah. um, but the companies that don't, so the, the, the real risk for manufacturers, <laughs> excuse me, as we move towards really connected devices and the value that the connected devices and the data can provide is that um, someone else comes in and connects their devices. So um, in some of the, uh, some of the, the content that I've uh, written, I talk about using a compressor company as an example. So now you're a compressor company and you get it and you connect your devices, you make them smart and you install those. And then you go to your customer and say, please, Mr. Customer, uh, give us access to your data because once we get enough data, we'll apply some machine learning and some artificial intelligence and we'll come back with some really cool applications. Well, for some of those customers that say, well, what are you going to do for me today? Why do I have to provide this now? Uh, what's, the, what's the benefit? Why should I bother to turn these devices on? And, but, if they, but if the manufacturers don't, then, then someone else is going to do it. So now you're a compressor manufacturer. And in a lot of the production environments is a hybrid equipment uh, market where companies have gone through different procurement cycles, uh, different price points on different people and different loyalties. So over a 20 year period, they may have compressors from three or four different manufacturers. Yep. And uh, so manufacturer number one, who's ahead of the curve, they go in and say, we're not going to provide connected devices. We're going to monitor our stuff. And um, the customer says, well, what about our other stuff? Um, who's going to connect those? Uh, why should we only have a small part of our production line being monitored? So the company that goes in and can say, we can connect the other compressors as well, and we'll provide that single pane of glass, they marginalize their competition because they're now collecting data from the entire group of, of uh, installed devices. They're getting intelligence on their competitors' equipment there's actually, uh, there's, uh, there's cases going on in Europe right now, uh, anti-competition for that very reason, where companies are saying, well, it's not fair that, that our competitor has access to the inner workings of our equipment that gives them a, a, a competitive advantage. And so there are a certain number of legal issues. 
but um, the company that gets it, they will ultimately control the data from all of the compressors and be able to go back to their customers with a solution that solves all of those problems. One thing that's huge for for uh, companies that are that are building like a product, they're they're able to collect data and find out like what what model of their air compressor is is operating, lasting the longest, has like the least least amount of downtime, like and they can start identifying things that were. Or if they start to have a failure and something, why are we having a failure in this one? Oh, yeah. Okay, we, we happen to start, we switched to using this bearing on that model or, or during that year. And, and then you can identify this issue. Oh, maybe we shouldn't use that bearing anymore because it's causing a failure to our systems into the future. Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of things that they can, that they can discover. Um, one of them is just uh, user behavior. Uh, user behavior can have a real impact on the, the life of a piece of equipment. Um, or whether there are consumables, um, ESOP. ESOP is a great uh, company from Sweden. They do robotic welding. And, um, and so they sell their robotic welding equipment. But one of the biggest variable costs for the customer is the filler metal. Mm-hmm. And the amount of filler metal they use to actually do the soldering. And the amount of, of filler metal can vary by 20 to 30%, depending on how careful or sloppy the operator is. And now you can start measuring that and say, well, operator A is using 20% less than operator B. And you can start going back with those those types of recommendations. Um, ESOB is actually looking at 10 years down the road to overcome this software barrier. They recognize that ultimately they need to be a managed service where they're providing um, welding as a service and potentially even outcome-based pricing. But where they go back to their customers say, we will provide everything. Here's the here's the welding equipment. Uh, we'll manage the filler material, and we will do the uh, the services. And it's all part of this monthly or quarterly or annual contract. You don't have to worry about anything. And uh, that's ultimately where a lot of these companies are going to go. I think it's definitely a, a business model that that has the opportunity to be very very fruitful. You know, it's every sector of business. It there there's always a taste for for the different flavors, right? Like, and, and so like this more subscription based, uh, style systems is something that, uh, people are going to want, right? There's definitely, they're not going to want to add that to their capital. expenditure. Yes. And no, it's funny because there are, uh, especially in manufacturing, there's still a very much of a, um, own, not rent. Yeah. Mentality. And, and, uh, so one of the business model objections is exactly that, that there are, a lot of companies that are uncomfortable not owning and having to pay on a monthly basis. So the so we're, we're going through more and more companies do see the benefit of OPEX and they see the benefit of you know, handing over the responsibility for the outcome to the vendor. And, uh, and in the process, they should be reducing their operating costs. Um, another example is a, a U.S. company called Donaldson. And uh, Donaldson does they do uh, industrial filtration. So they're, they're about a $3 billion company and their main product is a dust collector. A dust collector is a sheet metal structure, can be three stories tall. Uh, at the top of it is filled with uh, filters and they pull air in from the production environment. And then uh, each production environment plant, manufacturing plant has different levels of sensitivity to the dust particulates per million, depending on, you know, if you're in a Clean room is really, really uh, tight. Uh, if you're in a sawmill, maybe not so much of a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on that, then they pull the dust out and they can measure the amount of dust that's left in the facility. And uh, and they looked at it and, and the, the, the business is a razor blade business around the replacement filters. 
and they found out there were three main uh, factors that determine the useful life or the remaining life of a of a filter. It's heat, the temperature, it's the humidity, but most important, the amount of air that's pushed out of the compressors into the filter. So you've got the filters at the top, they collect the dust, the air compressor pushes the, uh, air into the filter, dislodges the, the, the dust, falls to the bottom of the structure, there's a drawer, they pull it out, that's the dust collector. It, really simple technology. Um, but um, if you miscalibrate the amount of air pressure, if it's not enough air pressure, the filters clog up with dust prematurely. If it's too much air, then it breaks down the membranes and you're destroying the, the, uh, the, the usefulness of the filter. Mm -hmm. So they went in, they attached sensors, they can measure all of these things now, and now they can manage and monitor the exact amount of pressure, the optimal amount of pressure that goes into the filters. Now, they're doing this as a managed service, and but their whole bit, half of their half of the revenues are from replacement filters, and so now it's a completely different business model. And yeah, yeah. the guys, the guys that are selling replacement parts, are saying, "Excuse me, <laughs> you know, um, we would like to see these filters turn over as quickly as possible." Whereas the managed services group are saying, "No, we want to extend the life because now we're responsible for the total cost of ownership of those filters." But mm -hmm. uh, but they're doing it very well, and it's a great example of a company that has gone from more the traditional, we'll deliver the product, uh, we'll do the maintenance service, and we'll come into the, the replacement of those parts to providing it all as a managed service. I do want to kind of take a, take a step back and, and find out like, where, where did all this come from? Like what, what like gave you the ability to take all these leaps and, and uh, navigate from having like a financial role into, into doing all these things in industry? Well, I think it's because of my finance background. I look at it from a financial perspective, not a technical perspective. So when I go into the situation, I want to solve a business problem. And uh, so I never get involved in the technology discussion of you know, which gateways are they using, what protocols, what devices, edge devices, how much are they moving here and there. Mm -hmm. um, my, my job is to come in and look at this from a business perspective and look at how do they solve the, the, the problem of, of getting into the hands of the customers. It's a, it's a business issue. And, um, and a lot of times the manufacturers are still very engineering focused, uh, the technology focused. And then what they do is they collaborate with a Microsoft or a Google or an AWS and all the technology geeks from there. And when you get the technology geeks together, uh, the, the Microsoft and, and AWS geeks say, why wouldn't this be a great use case? And the engineers and the manufacturers are like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Let's develop that. They do a POC without really understanding, is there a market? And if we build it, are we going to be able to sell it? So I think the fact that I do have a finance background puts me in a position to, to, to uh, help solve that problem. And having done so much work with between the, the global software companies and the industrial manufacturers, I've done 70 or 80 of these engagements. It's given me a really broad view of what's happening in the marketplace, who's, in the, who's up front on this, uh, who's lagging, why, and, and what, the, what the adoption rates are and what the business issues are that the, the manufacturers have to overcome in order to hopefully accelerate the rate of adoption of their technologies. Yeah, definitely a, a, a big gap in like our industry as far as like you, you have the, the side where uh, it's engineering, it's technical, and then you have the side that's that's business. And, and a lot of times those those are two completely different teams. A lot of times it's your it's your people on the shop floor, it's your it's your let's say automation engineer or your your manufacturing engineer. And, and that same person is not the, necessarily like the executive that actually cares about, you know, the the uh, 
ROI of systems and, and the, and the uh, process improvements and, and just more of the business aspects of, uh, of the different technologies and investments. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good observation, Malachi, because that is one of the things that companies run into is that, so you have these, these uh, manufacturers that might be doing five or $10 billion in revenues of their core business. And then they build out, they might invest you know, two, three, five, $10 million in this new technology. And they try to bolt that onto their existing business structure. And, and it doesn't work because, uh, and the point that you made around in manufacturing, these roles tend to be more siloed. When you move into, especially SaaS products, all of these roles are integrated and linked. So you need to have product development linked to sales and marketing. Uh, you need to have sales and marketing linked to customer support. Customer support needs to be integrated with the product development. It becomes a continuous feed, feedback loop. Uh, and that's a different way of thinking about the organization. And that's why for most companies that, that try to just bolt on this new uh, this, this, uh, connected devices solution onto, onto their, their existing organization, it's not going to succeed. The ones that are doing it well typically set up a separate structure, uh, a digital solutions group, for example, where they have people that are specialized in that. They have, uh, they may still leverage all of the core resources that company has. They'll leverage the key account managers, but they won't expect the key account managers to lead the charge and sell the solution. They might have specialized inside salespeople and customer success managers that really understand the SaaS solution and how you sell and support a SaaS solution. Same thing with customer support. On the product side, you have engineers sitting there uh, ready to get their hands dirty, fixing a problem for their customer. And those people can't sit there and answer and a, a question from an end user saying, well, how do I change this field from yellow to green? That's a different role. It's a different way to support the customers. So yes, yeah, so it's a great question and a great observation. And the ones that, uh, that uh, and I, I had this uh, conversation with, with uh, Luke Smau uh, from uh, Momenta. And we were talking about that and, and, and uh, we came to an agreement that, yeah, in the, in the incubation phase, this needs to be a separate organization. Uh, ultimately, you bring this back in, but only when it's, received, when it's achieved a, a critical mass and you have a successful business model. And some of the DNA of that organization has bled over to the manufacturing side. What are, what are your thoughts around the, the fact that like these departments are, are, are more segregated do you think that into the future we'll go to more business models where where they're like this SaaS style business model where things have to be more in a feedback loop? I, I think so. I mean, I think, I think we're already starting to see on the manufacturing side the whole concept of, of agile. Um, that's that's the cornerstone of development for SaaS solutions, uh, where you put together scrums and you have the teams and you and and you build uh, like a feature at a time rather than an end to end uh, monolithic solution. And I think we're starting to see some of that as more and more technology is incorporated into the, the hardware. Um, and, and hardware ultimately is not going to be the, the value driver. Hardware becomes a delivery mechanism to collect the data. And in, in more and more cases, we're seeing the hardware become the edge device where they're transferring some of the compute and the analytics uh, to the, the, the uh, device. Um, a company that's done this really well is uh, DMG Mori. Uh, the German Japanese joint venture, and they sell machine tools. And machine tools can be you know, 200, 300,000 euros, so really, really sizable pieces of equipment. And uh, they've built an entire operating system that's incorporated into the machine tool. And then on top of that operating system, they have a, a, a portfolio of specific applications. 
uh, built on top of that. So now you're seeing this hybrid. It's not just machine tools anymore, but machine tool with the software, it becomes a hybrid device and becomes the edge where a lot of the compute and a lot of the value can be driven from the hardware itself. Yeah, I think that we we definitely will see more of of the the business models being in in, in, a, in a more close loop. There, I think a lot of large companies. A big thing that happens is you you create your different departments and things as you grow. They kind of get segregated out so much that there's there's some guys at the, at the top that that try to guide what's going on down here, but the people down here really are not in relation with what's going on up here. And uh, I think that the, the data and, and, and the IoT things are going to uh, help close that gap because now we're, we're finally, now there's gonna be like a new layer of like positions, right? There's gonna be job titles that are opening up for uh, individuals who are, who are in charge of this, collecting this data, implementing this data and whole entire teams wrapped around, uh, like you said, having like a separate complete uh, business entity that, that you migrate into your company. Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. The, in, in, uh, both in traditional manufacturing and traditional software, very siloed uh, roles. So you have product development would come up with this great idea and build the product. They throw that over the wall to marketing. Marketing was responsible for generating the leads for this fantastic new solution. The leads would come in, they would throw that over the wall to the salespeople. Salespeople would follow their track and close the deal. And then when they were done, they would throw it over the wall to customer support. Uh, and, and, and those walls have to break down, have to come down. And uh, the more and more technology that's incorporated with the devices, the more important it is for these other roles to be involved in the design of the product up front so that it is easier to sell. It's easier to support. Uh, it has a clearer value proposition. So it's going to require much more collaboration between these teams. In today's environment, it's tough enough for an organization to get sales and marketing to work together. Um, and the really big challenge, if they're trying to change the DNA of their organization to get their existing teams to move down this collaborative path. That's why very often they find it necessary and, and desirable to, no, let's set up a separate group where the people that come in have that collaboration as their DNA. And then we can start benefiting from the best practices and bringing that into the rest of the organization. Because at, at this stage, I mean, the IoT stuff is, it's not even the tail wagging the dog. Uh, for many companies right now, it's the flea wagging the tail wagging the dog, but <laughs> it's the future. And uh, so for a lot of companies, it's very hard to justify, well, why should we invest in setting up a, a corporate structure and, and investing five or $10 million in developing this technology if it doesn't impact our, our sales this quarter or next quarter? And there's no clear time horizon. When you're building a new piece of equipment, you can model it out and you can say, here's our, here's our version 3.0, it's a brand new, and, and they know pretty much what the adoption is going to be, what the upgrade cycle is going to be, and they can map out what the revenue projections are to justify the investment and the ROI that they need. But with the IoT side, because the adoption has been so bumpy, they are there's a certain leap of faith that a company has to make to make that investment with the expectation that it's going to pay off at some point. But they can't sit down and, and have a, a cost plus and say, well, if we invest $5 million in this and we need to make a 15% margin, how do we? It's a, it's a completely wrong approach for the, the, the new generation of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I would say for like smaller companies that are looking to implement, like one thing they could try to do is, is find areas where they can add uh, smart devices and 
and there be some type of way to get an immediate ROI. Maybe you're maybe you're going to try to optimize line speeds. Maybe you're going to try to optimize downtime. And this could be a combination of all these things, but you're, you're trying to find some optimization to, to reach an ROI to make that initial investment. No, absolutely. That's that's for the internal use and, and process improvement. And absolutely agree with you there that companies of any size should be uh, incorporating those new technologies for their internal use. Um, where I've been going is companies that are developing these solutions to sell to those companies Got and the business model to sell those. But for so uh, there should, but but the the rate of adoption by companies for the internal use obviously impacts the the the, the sales likelihood of success for the companies manufacturing them. So uh, someone has to do that. We see this on LinkedIn. A lot of the content is around the education, training, culture, mm-hmm. and 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 so who's going to do that? Uh, to a certain extent, it's the responsibility now of the manufacturer with the connected devices to explain and educate their customers on the use cases and why they should be doing it. Yeah, I think that like, say for instance, like like a company like ours, like we have the opportunity because we're system integrators, right? So we're deploying robotic systems and uh, we have the opportunity to add features onto our devices. Like uh, one of the big ones that we shoot for is is remote support, right? Mm-hmm. So we try to we try to make it so that either every single device has some type of like, web interface that we can access remotely. And if there's not, then then we're putting a PC onto the system. So that way we right. have the capability of being able to log in and do changes. And uh, it's a little bit different, right? It's not just purely data collection, but you know, as a product provider, us being like a robotic system, uh, you know, we, we see the value in like adding these, these smart devices and then going back into like the remote side of things, uh, majority of these smart devices you can log into them and you can get error messages and, and so that mm-hmm. gives us even more capability on the remote side of things and so you but, you and i you and i see this from the delivery standpoint we understand the benefits so you're you're kind of uh at the at the cold face uh, the selling this to your customers what's the biggest pushback that you get uh, from companies when you're saying you could really add a va- lot of value with this additional intelligence built into your additional uh, your current production process yeah the biggest thing is, is them spending the extra money uh you know this is going to be forty thousand extra dollars to add these these pieces of equipment that are you know s- smarter devices have even at ip uh these these different uh, functionalities and to be honest like on, on anything that gives us like a very good uh roi half time we implement them anyway because we really feel that they're that valuable that we we just eat the cost like we try to get the customer to pay for them and then if they don't then we're going to use it anyway probably hopefully our customers aren't listening right now (laughs) 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 that's a really good point because that's one of the that's one of the discussion points i have with a lot of my my clients is because they have this again, manufacturing mentality and it's all cost plus, they say, well, if we're going to add connectivity to our devices, that's going to add $89 or $189 in costs, uh, we should be having our customers pay for that. Well, if the customers aren't inclined to install and use connected devices, you can't do that. And and, and as a manufacturer, the, the number one priority is to get an install base, whether or not the customers are turning it on and connecting, is getting your connected devices out there because once you have the install base, that's when you go back and send in your your, your specialized salespeople on, on convincing the customer that it's worthwhile for them to now connect the devices. The customers won't even know or care that they've not installed these connected devices. 
But the challenge then is show them the value, show them the ROI, and give them a good enough reason to connect to start sharing that data. Yeah, absolutely. And even some, there's some instances too where just like the devices themselves, like can give you more more feedback on the on the manufacturing floor where if they won't allow you to connect to the internet at least it's at least it's there you can collect the data in the plc you can connect it or collect it in the plc you can export as uh like csv files so at least it's it's there and and so maybe that's something that we do as like a, a sales tactic like sure the data's here we're doing a lot of monitoring of things behind the scenes but you know, if, if the customer wants it, and they want to pay for it, then they have access to it. If they don't, then they don't have access yeah. to it. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and for uh, for a lot of um, end user customers, that will be the first baby step. And uh, because many of them are going to have a historian, they're going to have uh, uh, OSI Soft or or uh, Viva. They're going to have historical data. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you can go back and say, well, we've got twenty years of data. So let's just analyze the historical data. We don't have to move anything to the cloud, but we'll look at the historical data because we can we can do a lot in terms of, of looking at what are the characteristics of that, that determine the useful life uh, and come back with recommendations based on the historical data. It doesn't necessarily have to be a real-time connection. There will be additional value add when you go live and have that, uh, that real-time uh, connection, but there's a lot that can be done with historical data and for a lot of the customers that are reluctant to share data, they don't understand the internet connect connectivity, they can still get a lot of that value. One thing that I, I, that I see as being a big one in like robotics and, and automated pieces of equipment is uh, identifying like where like a issue occurred, right? Let, let's say for, especially like a critical issue, like a, a robot crashes into something like you need to be able to identify like why, why that happened and, and you know, ensure that it never happens. Can right. you can you identify that an operator gra grabbed the teach pendant and moved the robot, and then uh, and they 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 press the play button that from after the after maintenance came and moved the robot or something. Yeah. Um, and, and also too for like a, somebody who's a machine builder that could be good on your part because if ever the the customer says, hey this this machine crashed and crashed and it's because of you guys' programming you guys can go back and you can look at the data it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be an argument you can go clearly look at it and say okay we have a discrepancy the data says this is where the robot was it was moved and then mm -hmm. somebody hit the, the start button so by being able to put these type of things in place it it makes it easier to be able to identify and, and avoid future mistakes yeah no no, no absolutely um the next, it's, it's going to be fascinating. Um, a lot of the companies that I've worked with have been in business for 120 to 150 years. And really what they do over the next five years is going to determine their viability long-term as a manufacturer. And some of the companies get it, um, many don't. And the ones that don't are going to wake up one day. There's, there's, um, there's a, a huge amount of investment that's happening, what I would call under the water surface, that isn't visible yet. The companies that I've worked with that, that haven't actually released their, their IoT portfolio, the connected devices, but that have been investing over the last two or three years to bring the technology to the level it needs to be. And now looking at the organizational aspects and the go-to-market. And when they come to market, they're going to be competitors that all of a sudden wake up and realize, oh my God, um, we are a generation or two behind where the market is going and they're going to find themselves in a really difficult position because they won't have 
the resources to ramp up quickly enough. And then what do they do? Do they buy that from, they bring in a Cognite or, or Tulip or, or uh, they bring in a systems integrator? Um, how do they try and catch up and make their equipment intelligent and competitive before the companies that are out there today take their market share away from them? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to see, I think, a, a, a lot of consolidation in the manufacturing space uh, driven by Industry 4.0. Yeah, absolutely. I think I even see there, there's a gap. I kind of look at it, a gap between automation and there's a gap between IOT. I mean, there's some companies who are, who are not even hitting the automation phase yet. Yeah. And yeah. It's really the biggest reason why I haven't, why I haven't talked a lot about IOT uh, type of things is because there's so many customers that are still behind and in, in trying to get automated, like 100%. Like if they don't catch up on the automation side of things, then no, no. there's, yeah, there's just so many manufacturing processes that are just so far behind that I don't, they have to basically restructure their entire company. Yeah. 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 There's still a long ways to go on the OT side of it. What are, what are some of the other challenges that you, you see with, uh, with companies implementing IOT? It's, it's, um, it's the organizational culture and the pushback. I mean, you look at the, you look at the demographics of the people that are running and, and, and working in these companies. And uh, so the, a lot of these companies will have a tough time attracting the right talent uh, that have the skills necessary. So you're sitting there as a manufacturer and you're at the middle of nowhere in Eastern Germany or in Ohio. And do you now you've, you've um, realized that you need to go down this road and you and you've been collecting data and you've got it, but now you need, you need a data scientist to come in and start making some sense out of all this data. You need some programmers and you're sitting there in the middle of Ohio and Minnesota. How do you attract the really good people? And, uh, and if you don't attract the right people, then you can't actually build out the, 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 the technology and then the organizational changes. And, it is really, it's a really big issue for companies when you have a very traditionally have 10,000, 20,000 employees that have been doing the same, the, the same kind of business, same process for the last 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then I come in with this little digital services team that really gets where you need to go and is trying to change the behavior of the other 20,000. And there's a, there's a huge disconnect. Uh, that I think is probably the number one challenge within companies, even the ones that absolutely get it. There are, uh, there are very few examples of companies that have successfully made that transformation. There will be over the next few years, but, uh, but on the, the hardware manufacturing or even the industrial software side, um, it's been very difficult. The, the organizations that have been able to change completely are uh, the two that come to mind are Adobe and Microsoft, where they, but it was brute force, uh, top down. They were going to change the organization uh, and focus on subscription model services, and 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 that was the only thing that counted. And but at, at a terrible cost of attrition, um, because it was if you can't adjust, you're gone. Now, when you're a manufacturing company, you can't do that because you have all that institutional knowledge that's necessary for the manufacturing side and the sales and support of that equipment. And uh, so it's a, it's a much tougher process for a company coming at it from manufacturing to start making the changes to the organization and the culture that set them up for that long-term success. Well, I want to take a, a little bit of a shift to the conversation. What are, what are some of the things that you found have, have made you successful throughout your, your career? The one thing is that I've got a broad background. Uh, and, and so 
it's it allows me, since I'm not just coming at it from a technology perspective or uh, where I just come out of digital marketing or a very specific area, uh, it, it it's helped me um, sit down with companies that understand the end-to-end process that they're going through and then make those and help them make those adjustments. So I think maybe just having a broader view, that's one. Uh, the second is that for whatever reason, um, I feel comfortable in facilitating conversations. A lot of these engagements are really just around aligning the management where management comes in and in some organizations you have a lot of very strong and opposing views and, mm-hmm. and being able to sit down and work with a team uh, from manufacturing, from product management, from, from, from uh, sales and support and having them align around an action plan uh, and working together to accomplish whatever it is that they come out of there as, as an agreement. And it may not be as aggressive as a digital group wanted, uh, but it might be a little bit more aggressive than the manufacturing side we're comfortable with, but where they have an understanding of why they need to do it and how they're going to work uh, together on that. Um, when it comes to the business models, business is business, there's processes for every part of the business model. And, uh, but it's how do you apply that to a specific organization and a culture and what their overall objectives are. So you can't go in with a connect the dots and paint by numbers where you take every company through exactly the same process and have the, a lot of companies use the, the business model canvas, which was just a very programmatic approach to uh, you spend an hour and a half on the value proposition and you look at the sales and look at the customers and partners and resources and you work your way through that. But it's a very, it's a very structured, rigid process that you take them through. And we're, we're I think in large part because I've done so many of them now, uh, I feel really comfortable sitting down with the team and just facilitating the conversation, identifying what the real pain points are, which they don't always know. Those surface then have, have those resolved so they can work together more collaboratively to achieve whatever their objectives are. Do you, do you feel like you've always been uh, a fairly good salesperson or did that kind of come throughout your journey? Yeah, I don't, I don't consider myself a salesperson. Uh, <laughs> it's a, but I think that it's... A, Part of it, the, my approach is always, uh, and you brought this up earlier, is, is, is problem, res- problem resolution. When you're going in as a systems integrator, you're helping your customers solve the problem. You have to understand what the, what the problem is and then help them solve it. And uh, if you can do that, then yeah, you can call that a sales approach, but it's not where you're going in and saying, this is my packaged product and I want you to buy it and here are the three benefits. And um, you start at the other end of understanding what their issues are, what they need to resolve, and then coming to them with, the customized solution. Absolutely. And it's like, it's going through a, a very large, uh, like I- identification phase. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, go through and see all, all the inputs, all the variables and, and, and then take those variables, analyze them and, and come up with whatever the proper solution is. <laughs> That's right. And understanding how those variables fit together yes. and then and, and seeing that picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think being, being a, a problem solver definitely makes it uh, the easier process or the process easier. Um, I find it very hard. Like we don't like, we don't really work in a space where you're really, you, like you said, a salesperson, right? It's, it's just, it's adding value. It's, it's figuring out uh, people's problems and then resolving those problems. Yeah. And that's, that's the more modern approach to selling is consultative selling. And people will say, well, if you're going in and helping resolve problems, you're also selling um in a, in a better way but it really is uh, what the customer needs and customizing the process and the outcome for what their needs are rather than trying to push them into something that might be more programmatic 
what what are what are some things that you advise for uh individuals navigating their career oh um don't plan anything <laughs> <laughs> don't 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 have a kind of a a 20-year plan on what you're what uh just go with it um uh, you, you you figure out what you're good at and be open to new opportunities and and um we see we see this in in a lot of technology companies a lot of the people that do best are not the technologists they're the people that have a liberal arts education and uh and so uh as people are moving to the cares be open to new things and i mean uh, the 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 phrase that is often used is build a talent stack if you end up being really focused in one area then then you're at risk you might become a very deep dive specialist in that one area but that's all you're good at and if the world changes or if there's no need for that any longer mm-hmm. uh and we've seen a lot of roles that just disappeared over the last 10 years then then you're right so um i would say more methodically try different things for the first five to ten years uh and and get a broad base of, of experience um it will it just provides a much stronger foundation for making the right decision for you, but also being able to see a bigger picture when you're going into um, a business environment. Yeah, that, that was one of the main main things that I kind of take away is that by doing more things, you're able to get a bigger picture, right? You're able to see uh, see things in a different way that you couldn't see if you're just stuck in doing this one thing. Yeah. Like, there's been a lot. So like, say for instance, like majority of my career, I've been in system integration. So like the lucky part to that is like, I'm constantly going into different manufacturing facilities throughout my career and working on different type of systems and working on different issues. So it's like my entire career, there's been things that are different, right? Even though it's all been in, in, in automation and manufacturing, it's still like being able to witness so many different manufacturing processes, work with so many different people, um, and just going through all those different phases and then, and then, you know, becoming a business owner, there's a whole new, uh, realm of things that you have to learn. I mean, like I, I primarily did a lot of like engineering project management. And now it's like, I'm having to go through and learn more about like finance and, and I understand how to scale a business, but, you know, doing things like setting budgets to things and, and, uh, more business relationship type of stuff, like, sales processes like we've pretty, pretty much had to you know create our sales process from scratch from a guy that never was really involved in sales right and, and we're just now kind of getting getting to a point where our, our sales team is like really built out and is uh actually it's like a, a good full-fledged department you know yeah but you can you can uh, you can look at your your career as an are you a product or are you a platform uh, the, the broader your experience, the more of a platform you become, and then the individual uh, roles become the applications of the product. So sales is a product, but it sits on top of the platform of understanding how to run a business. And so the broader your experience, the stronger your platform, the more you can apply that in, in uh, different scenarios. Well, do you, do you have any uh, last valuable points you'd like to add to the community? No, it's just a, it's just a fascinating time. Um, I, I would encourage people in the community to really uh, uh, use LinkedIn. It's, it's amazing to me how much knowledge people are willing to share, the, the influencers and the thought leaders, how much information is there and, and different perspectives and conversations. And it's a great way for manufacturers that are start, starting to think about it and, and, and need information uh, is to engage on, uh, on LinkedIn and to see what's out there. There's a tremendous amount of, of, of knowledge uh, that's available and it'll help people make a, a better more informed decision 
on what's right for them. And connected products is not going to be right for everybody. They don't have a big enough customer base. They don't have, so they just have to recognize that. They, the ones that will get into trouble are the ones that uh, try to be too ambitious and don't have the foundation for being successful. But yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, really about uh, understanding where the industry is going, where their particular company fits into the overall trend, and then having a realistic understanding of, uh, of what they should be doing, what they could be doing. And I think I like that the the fact that you're like touched on like LinkedIn and how it opens up so many doors. Uh, I think I just made a YouTube video about it like last week, but um, it, it's such a good tool. Like I wish I would have done it and been on it, you know, five years before I did. I didn't really didn't even think about getting on LinkedIn until I was you know starting a business and I was like, hey, this is a good way for me to you know reach a community and potentially you know sell to individuals and and really just like build out my network because, you know, leaving the company that I left, I pretty much left with no network. And, uh, if I would have been building the network that I, that I've been doing the past three years, uh, I mean, no telling, I, I wouldn't even probably need a sales team. You know, I'd just <laughs> yeah, be connected much, with all the people. <laughs> but you're right. And it's, it's amazing to me how much goodwill there is, how I was one of the first 25,000 users of, of, uh, LinkedIn. I think I registered in, in 2003. Oh, and wow. it's amazing to me how how they've been able to maintain the the, the quality of people, the quality of discourse. Uh, you see some trends towards the uh, Twitterization, if you will, of personal opinions, but for the most part, it's very professional. Mm -hmm. and, and the amount of goodwill uh, that that people are, their willingness to share their experiences uh, and their thoughts and their recommendations uh, in in both the 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 chat part of LinkedIn, but also the, the specific industry groups and that you can, uh, so it's, it's a fantastic resource. Absolutely. Where can people find you at? Oh, uh, website is, uh, www.yourgroup.com and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn, I, I got H Horgan as the extension. So it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> grandfathered in. <laughs> so awesome. so the, uh, yeah, those, those are two. I've, um, I, I'm on Twitter, but for, for personal, um, and, and uh, so it, for me, it's, uh, it's LinkedIn is the only one, only the, the only social media from a business perspective that, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here with us today, Harold. Malachi, this was great. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for being here.